So, since this episode started with the cold open, I figured, why not do a cold open on cold opens? That's the narrative technique that refers to the opening sequence of a show that comes before the title sequence or opening credits are rolled. Now, we could talk about title sequences too. That's a whole other thing. Should I do it now or save it? Since more is lost by indecision than by wrong decision, let me make a note to definitely come back to it. Maybe attach it to the end of this episode or... Another time, Anthony. Another time. So, do cold opens have recipes? I'm not aware of an autolangi of cold opens, so I'll do my best to not be a fourth-rate stand-in. What do they got to have to work, functionally? As always, a couple of three things. They've got to capture audience attention. It's an opportunity to hook them with an intriguing scenario, a compelling character moment, a suspenseful situation, or a humorous event. Now, discerning viewers know what's going on as soon as you see a cold open. So don't delay with the hook, whatever it is. What else? They've got to set the tone for the episode. Give us something we can expect in terms of mood, style, and pacing. It's got to introduce the plot or theme of the episode. Establish a narrative purpose in an engaging way. Finally, it can introduce a new character. Give us a clear sense of who they are, or at least some sense, and why they're important to the story. Let's take a look at each of these in turn with respect to 46 Long. That's Tony's suit size as written in one of the drafts for this episode. Does this cold open achieve any or all of those things? Newsflash. Of course it does. It's the fucking Sopranos. But let's go through the exercise. How does this cold open capture our attention? We're in a room with these guys, a place where civilians aren't allowed to be, so there's intrigue. Check. They're presiding over a table full of cash. Check. And there's a Godfather reference. Check. How does this cold open set up the tone for the episode? Well, it's about how the business, their business, isn't what it was. Money's not long. At least not the way Kendrick raps about anyway. It's about how guys aren't loyal like they used to be. This, of course, plays right into Chris's arc this episode. From going rogue to falling in line like Paul Bomber in All Quiet on the Western Front. Now, how's the plot or theme of this episode introduced in an engaging way? Is there anything more engaging than bags of crinkled cash dumped onto a table and sorted? The soprano version of a Brinks truck? This, while neatly introducing the concept of a rat? Or government informant? And their proliferation on account nobody wants to go to jail? This got me wondering about the most rat-infested of the five families. There has to be one that's in a league of its own, right? A five-family power rankings in terms of number of rats? Well, by some accounts, the Bonanno family is considered the most compromised. That's the family behind Donnie Brasco and former boss Joe Messino. Finally, back to the elements of a cold open. What about new characters? Well, 
There's nobody new here, per se, but we get coloration to several of them. Pauly repeats himself, laughs at his own jokes, also demonstrates his masterclass physical comedy abilities. The timing. He's more on time than Ashanti. The precision. He's got more control over his hands than Logan Roy does over his own company. The exaggeration. He stands out more than Nikola Jokic's step-back threes. Okay, maybe not that much, but he's on the same court. The surprise. He's like the drum fill you didn't know a song needed until you hear it in the mix. And then there's the repetition. Each one becomes better than the last. Like aging fine wine. Or repeat viewings of this show. Other coloration. Christopher's still not at the big boy table. Also, the antagonistic relationship between him and Polly is on display for the first time. As kicked off in a way most antagonistic relationships begin. Mom jokes. Hey, Sam, I might take a fucking limo in Paris. Like you were ever in Paris, Paulie. I went over for a blowjob. Your mother was working the bonbon concession at the Eiffel Tower. So, did you hear what I told him? I told him I went over for a blowjob. Your mother was working the bonbon concession at the Eiffel Tower. One in particular that I still remember to this day. Your mama's so stupid, she thought a quarterback was a refund. And everything about Silvio suggests comic relief on tap. The ability to make tense or alien situations relatable and light. He, too, is a purveyor of perfectly timed physical comedy. Though part of his perfect timing is actually its imperfection, if that makes sense. At the writing level, he's the kind of character you can conveniently insert into a scene to break up dialogue, or even punctuate it as he so often does. One that always comes to mind is... Always with the scenarios. That shit is so surgical because it's almost as if the fourth wall is being broken without actually breaking it. We're in on things beyond an otherwise static two-way exchange. Finally, coloration-wise, Pussy's dispassionate, removed. The biggest reveal of his treason, to me, is the way he changes the subject to cloning when the guys are locked in on what the Genovese soldier is saying on the tube. Which, you know, got me wondering, as I'm sure it did last time, about the State of the Union with respect to the end of the organized crime era and how that aggressive government policy over two decades worked out. Results are mixed. Wiretaps, surveillance, and sting operations were the X's and O's on the law enforcement playbook for the longest time, but could only go so far and banks being required to report suspicious transactions certainly helped too. But it all comes down to demand. Demand for things organized crime specializes in. Drugs, prostitution, gambling. And to meet this demand, OC had to evolve, as with everything else. They got better with tech, more sophisticated comms. They shifted money from mattresses to shell companies, high finance, international secrecy jurisdictions, complex webs of ownership, like those Russian nesting dolls only instead of babushkas, one inside the other, it's dummy corporations. And somewhat counterintuitively, they got better at violence, desensitized to it. Things like disappearing witnesses, 
not unlike the way the Denver Nuggets disappeared opponents this season. Intimidating prosecutors and judges. And not just with physical violence, but the threat of it. Stalking, bribery, smear campaigns, doxing, or publicly revealing private information. Though, now that I sit here enumerating the ways in which OC got better at violence, it makes total sense. As their MO, page one of the manual, so to speak, is operating on a model of fear and loyalty, like Belichick's Patriots or Coach K's Blue Devils. Do as I say and as I do. To their credit, they do most of the winning in their respective arenas. Okay, a couple stray items before moving on. The idea of what you see versus what you hear. We hear confusion, instability, a vacuum at the top. But we see bags of cash, bills of various denominations, relative stability, and colleagues enjoying each other's company. Dare I say, camaraderie. The mention in Princess Di by Syl about whether or not she got whacked by the royal family. In 2004, an inquiry called Operation Paget looked into all the conspiracy theories surrounding her death, of which there were over 100. It went on for about three years at a cost of about four mil, across over 300 interviews. The net result, no evidence of any wrongdoing on the part of the family itself, though the conspiracies still exist just like those 2002 Sacramento Kings Western Conference final ones. Now, what does this cold open tell us about the rest of this episode? Everybody's suspect. And given Christopher's transgressions, he's an early suspect, especially in the viewer's mind. And that's nothing more than writerly brilliance. Leading us one way, making us think or believe one thing, and then subverting it. What does this cold open tell us about the rest of the series? Well, paranoia, always looking over your shoulder, is de rigueur. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. You are listening to Pada Bing Redux, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos and all things that flow from it, all over again, including today's Café du Jour, New Zealand Peaberry. Our Café du Jour is New Zealand Peaberry. What on? What up? I'm your guide, partner, fellow fan, Vic Singh. It's an honor and privilege that you're here and that we're doing this together again. Before I pick up off the momentum of the cold open and roll through 46 long, as a matter of organization, location-wise, there's a big four of where things will more or less happen going forward. The Bing, the House, Satrials, and what I'll call the field. A bit of an umbrella term for activities, well, in the field. Did I miss anything? Oh yeah, duh, Melfi's office. Guess that makes it the big five then. Five points, if we want to get all Scorsese about it. So, starting out in the field, Chris and company hijack an immigrant truck driver carrying DVD players. Guess the modern-day analog might be what? Roku sticks? Apple TVs? Crypto cold storage keys, maybe? Script level, 
This is workplace drama dynamics at play. That means conflict in the form of competition for resources. There's only so many things you can jack. And desperation breeds the path of least resistance. Here, jacking a known quantity. In effect, an inside job. The same way an official might embezzle money from public funds. Or the way some refs might decide to play iso ball with their whistles. Not naming any names. Workplace dramas mean power struggles. Chris and Brendan are both comers in a system that's holding them back. The books are closed. Workplace dramas mean personal rivalries. We're seeing a potential one take root here. Christopher and Brendan. Chris himself vouches for Brendan. Says he's a good earner. That's a script-level setup for a betrayal or a reversal. Either way, there will be blood. And with respect to Tony, though it's not technically a rivalry since he's the boss, it's more like punching above one's weight, everything about Christopher and the pilot felt rivalrous. And it continues in this episode, up until the day of the Italian suit job, when he has a sudden change of heart, some more of those visualizations. Maybe he worked through it all on his morning pages. Maybe it was as simple as sobering up. The driver of the truck presents an interesting scenario in that he wants more than anything to be scathed, touched up, so his bosses don't think he's in on it, and then goes so far as to thank them for the privilege of getting a beatdown. Something about that mindset is simply fascinating to me. Even has backdoor pilot qualities almost, or a bottle feature about a guy who needs a convincing alibi lest he be accused of collusion and ultimately lose his job. So many questions. Is there a pervasive culture of suspicion like that in the transport and logistics trade? Beyond background checks, what do the policies look like that would put the fear of God into drivers like that? Does the driver himself have a reputation he's worried about amongst peers in his own circle? And could Christopher have pulled this off today? With things like advanced GPS tracking, IoT devices that can ping the mothership with real-time updates on various parameters, like temperature, humidity, vibrations, unauthorized access, or even dash cams. Shit, with all the telematics and fleet management systems and automation they got now, RFID cards and the like, drivers today couldn't execute an inside job if they tried. Okay, I think this concept has been scathed enough. At the house, A.J. tells Carmela about his teacher, Mr. Miller, whose car was stolen. Nothing like a little plot insertion at the breakfast table in between sips of O.J. and noshing on egg. It's why the scene exists structurally. Get it the fuck out of the way and drive right back into character development. I always think of that first episode of The White Lotus and how Mike White just served us a cold body getting pushed into the belly of a plane right off the bat. Deliberately putting it up front in a fuck you algorithms and ambient viewers sort of way. So we could focus on what's really interesting. What makes the work worth it. Character. Tony comes down in his robe, helps himself to some OJ, is told he's up earlier than normal, and sings Procol Harum's A Whiter Shade of Pale out loud. Was that Annie Lennox's version? Either way, All these breadcrumb visuals, Chekhov's guns conveyed on the page, are methodical setups, motifs, through lines for the entire series. 
things we find comfort and nostalgia in, things that ground us in the world, things that familiarize us with the protagonist. Little reminders that we're experiencing a thing and that our attention and devotion will be rewarded in time. Procol Harum, by the way, is grammatically incorrect Latin, which may or may not have been motivated by the dizzying array of malapropisms in the show. There's a reason I bring that up. Wait for it. The song was also featured in that Paramount show about the origin story of the Godfather called The Offer. Is it just me, or was that largely forgettable? Except for the actor who played Coppola. He did a great job. Carmela asks if Tony can do something about it. Miller's car. Problems, problem solving. The normalcy of this, though. Low-key suggesting he lean on people and how it reaches a fever pitch with her and her spec later. Putting this line of inquiry in early sets us up for one of the ways in which their relationship is unique. Sure, spouses have the other do certain things all the time, but her approach is different. There's something measured, deliberate about it. It's character development at its best. Memorable. Fully realized. Distinct. Tony will only bother with stuff like this if there's an angle. Something in it for him. In this case, bailing AJ out of a bad grade. Which isn't all that out of this world. There's plenty of parents who bribe teachers for grades. One parent I read about once sued a teacher over a bad grade. And another hacked the school's computer network to alter transcripts. I'm afraid to email their teacher. How fucked are they? Here, though, what's so interesting to me is the way Tony decides if it's worth it. The way it's written is so precise. Chase is bringing the ball up the court like De'Aaron Fox. Come too close, and he'll blast right by. Casually asking AJ how he's doing in school says everything you need to know to piece intent together. So much of this stuff is what's unsaid, and nobody does it better. Succession certainly emulates a lot of it, but it's deployed across the ensemble. There's no one focal point. Carmela, of course, says that's not what she meant. Again, what is said versus what is seen. What we see in her reaction is that that's exactly what she meant. And her track record on this stuff, especially with respect to getting things for her kids, suggests going forward, that's her M.O. Tony soothes her, reassures her by serenading her with some more Procol Harum while they waltz before going back up to bed. Coming down to go right back up. Another theme, motif, dose of character. Memorializing the robe is more than just a prop. If you're going to put a robe like that on, might as well make it last. Also, random stray thought regarding the trend of robes. How prolific or not are they right now, today? Turns out they've never been more popular. Wow. I think I've worn one maybe twice. And that was only because I was in a half-decent hotel where they came wrapped in a bow. Now, what's it called or what does it mean, the implied, I will help you, but in exchange you will do this other thing for me? And what does it say about the person who was helped when they didn't seek it, but then are expected to do something they never signed up for in return? Here's a grammatically correct Latin phrase for you. Quid pro quo. Something for something. All our favorite entertainment is rife with it. From Clarice Starling to Hannibal Lecter, or Lecture, if you're Tony, Walter White and Jesse Pinkman, 
the Lannisters and the Tyrells, virtually everybody in the West Wing, any teammate of LeBron's when he's got his GM hat on. And of course, Don Corleone and Bonacera. Someday, and that day may never come, I'll call upon you to do a service for me. Now, him maybe not having an option notwithstanding with respect to Mr. Miller, is he obligated to do something in return for a thing he didn't ask for or agreed to? Can there fairly be an expectation of reciprocity when Miller never agreed to the terms of the exchange? Social norms or Miller's personal feelings of indebtedness aside, it's one thing to enforce a debt you consented to or knowingly incurred. It's another thing entirely to be forced to incur a debt you never consented to. Why not? Because a woman has a right to choose who she has sex with. What? How about that? Isn't that amazing? There must be consent. How about that? (laughs) That's good, huh? Is not good for me. Over at the Bing, Christopher's signature struts in, singing about his score. A foil for Tony's progress in all things business is introduced. Georgie, not being able to take messages or transfer calls. Always makes me think of Tony B's line. Read a fucking book. What was that Nucky in Boardwalk Empire? Fuck, now that I think about it, it was probably both. Only fitting that Buscemi said it in both shows. There's also that super bad line. Muhammad is the most commonly used name on earth. Read a fucking book for one. Speaking of super bad, Tony isn't feeling Christopher's friend, Brendan. Despite being a good earner, it's the drugs. Specifically methamphetamine. And from one dumpster fire to another, Tony realizes he needs to call his mother. Comes out of nowhere. Like, what about Christopher made him think about his mother? She chastises him for not calling, even though he in fact called just yesterday. I, for one, can relate to that. The very definition of a broken record. She gets up to check her mushrooms, but is distracted by the comings and goings of a postal worker outside. Ennui of regular life, especially of those who spend their days kicking around the house, need a hobby. She throws water over what's evidently a grease fire, and that, as we see, is the very last thing you want to do. The water quickly turns to steam and, in so doing, carries grease particulates with it, causing the flames to rage further. I know. Ranger fucking Rick over here. Smokey the bear. I don't know. What she should have done, since if there's one thing we are on this pod is completists, is turn the heat source off and smother the pan with a lid of some sort, cut off the oxygen supply. And this should have been zero problem for Livia, as we all know she's got enough silver platters to go around. Now, mind you, the extent of my fire prevention skills comes from watching clips of Bluey or Gecko's Garage, that's how they say, garage across the pond, with my four-year-old. But come on, man. Livia should have been all over that, like Jaron Jackson's interior defense this year. Context. The earner that does drugs. The help who can't root calls. The mother who can't put out a grease fire. Guys waiting around for orders as opposed to being proactive. Pussy asking about plate numbers for the teacher. What exactly is this scene doing? Telling us, showing us. That Tony's life is a constant iteration of that. If it's not this, it's that. If it's not that, it's something else. It's always something. Here's a guy for who it comes from all angles. A never-ending sequence. Like that No Doubt song, It's My Life, or K in three. Carmela rushes over to help, all's well. 
But this scene is about an opportunity to show us how Livia interacts with someone other than her son. Both of them want different things, naturally. Carmela wants Livia to not be left alone, to allow for someone to be around to help out. Livia wants the opposite, but not before basking in the attention. And that nugget that was dropped at the very end, Carmela's revealed to Livia that Tony suffers from anxiety attacks and is on medication for them. The things we say in passing that end up having repercussions down the line. The way it plants seeds of contempt. Such an efficient way to weave together multiple storylines and themes. Sail us from one ocean to another with just a line. Back in the field, Pussy's Body Shop, he blows dust off papers on his desk, code for not being around much. Besides, we know who really runs the place. We learn from one of the texts that one of the guys who jacked Miller's car works at a coffee shop. Again, every line. Deliberate. Propulsive. Continuing out in the field, Pussy and Polly visit said coffee shop, a reconnaissance exercise for the missing car. Recall from Season 2, Episode 10, Bust Out, how Tony always sends Polly out for recon-type jobs. He could be Claudio Crippa, the international scout for the San Antonio Spurs, the way he gathers intelligence for Tony. But the scene's also a referendum on cultural appropriation. The way Polly rubs his thumb and index finger together as he complains. The physical comedy gives so much allowance in the writing to go places, try things. Such a beautiful, lucky thing to be able to rely on. These pivots and pump fakes that use the viewer's recovery momentum against them. If you watch basketball, you might liken them to little dream shakes. And they're all over the place on this show. On the page. On the screen. From field work to frontal lobe work. Melfi's office. Still on mom and progress there. Agencies are now involved. Trinidadian women. Whose cultural heritage is a blend of African, Indian, European, Chinese, and Middle Eastern influences. Decidedly not Tony's suggesting of Rastafarian roots. But that just makes it funnier. Layered. What this scene's all about is Tony's willingness to do anything but have his mother live with them. Though he'll throw anybody under the bus that suggests the same, as we'll see in a sec. What's that thing called when you invite or ask or offer someone to do something knowing full well that you don't actually want them to say yes and you, in fact, very much hope they say no, but secretly dread that they actually might say yes, which very much would be the worst case scenario for you. But you offer it out of obligation or kindness or whatever strand of altruism you have that rears its head. But again, this is not something you actually want to happen, even though your offer or invitation on its face is direct and generous. What's that phenomenon called? Courtesy invite? Empty gesture? Made out of a sense of obligation? Politeness? Social convention? All driven by a desire to maintain social harmony or avoid conflict or preserve a certain image or reputation? The latter of which you can figure is the only one Tony cares about? And then there's the matter of Tony blaming Carmela for not wanting Livia to be in the house. This, of course, just after we saw Carmela herself extend an invitation, however veiled, empty, to Livia. This, to me, is a classic example of how what's said in the show directly affects every facet of every other thing. Carmela's invitation was a setup for this payoff from Tony. 
Him throwing her under the bus to his therapist. What's that called when you blame somebody for something that's actually your fault? Deflection? Or every out-of-bounds call against the Lakers this playoff run? Melfi introduces the notion that Tony's got siblings to us, two sisters, tiny setup slipped into the mix. Those blink-or-you'll-miss-it moments are so great. It informs the writing process, certainly makes it more fun. But the reward it provides to audiences, it's like it puts a token of loyalty into the slot machine that is the viewer. Melfi also pushes against the myth that Livia is a simple old lady, that she instead wields quite a bit of power, toxic power. And she bolsters her case by proving that Tony can't come up with a real positive experience with her growing up when she holds his feet to the fire. More of that tension and release. He mentions her laughing once at her husband's expense when he fell. And as we'll see in a later episode, that was an intentional setup. As we'll see the whole thing play out all over again. Only this time it'll be Tony instead of his father. Melfi's office, besides getting inside Tony's head, is always a nice place where other storylines are conjured up or summoned. It's like that style of basketball that used to be played pre-Steph. Inside out. Take the ball, wait for the double, kick it to the outside man. The magic of giving such a prominent role to a therapist character is that by their very nature, they can shift and pivot in whatever direction they want in a way that writing without them can't or that would require the laying of a lot more foundation, which just wouldn't work the same. And to that point, what she does here is immediately conjure up feelings of guilt. From ungrateful fuck to yanking an exorbitant bouquet of flowers out of his back seat. Back in the field, at his mother's. Tony drops some racist undertones, or probably overtones, to Perry Lynn. No ganja, the implication that Trinidad and Jamaica are one and the same. Livia expresses her suspicions of Perry Lynn, stealing plates, various other agendas, being forward, being happy, God forbid. Her resentment flows far beyond the four corners of her son. The stealing accusation is enriched by the notion that it was in fact stolen from a restaurant in Rome by Aunt Satimia. Irony, hypocrisy, and entitlement rolled up into a single idea. Tony naturally takes an opposing viewpoint, that it's more of Livia forcing her possessions on people, thinking she's going to die. That's called death anxiety, or thanatophobia. When Livia says she wishes it was tomorrow, that's what I feel when it's an off day in the National Basketball Association. Now, when he tells her there's nothing she can do to get rid of Perilyn, that she stays and that's all there is to it, she changes. Becomes calculating almost. Even more than him, if it's possible. Says Junior called the house for him and that he sounded agitated. Yeah, Sure, this simple line moves us from one scene to the next, but she timed it. She was lying in wait, almost, for the right time to drop it. And I only say that because of what happens in the next episode. Her de facto ruling on Christopher and the Filoni kid. From Livia's junior update to junior himself, outside Satrial's. Seeking a ruling on the power struggle with his nephew, a la acting boss, Jackie April. Remember, this is the DeMeo crime family. And the boss boss, Ercole DeMeo, is serving a prison sentence. 
That's what put Jackie in charge for the time being. Also, recall that Urkeley, or Eckley, or Boot, as he was known, is also the brother of Rocco DeMeo, toughest cocksucker in Essex County, and the one-time owner of a certain leather jacket. The jacket, the jacket. Again, no backstory on Jackie. Just show up at your preordained time on the call sheet and let them all figure it the fuck out. Junior's beef outside the pork store, see what I did there, is that Brendan jacked one of the going concerns under Junior's purview for 21 fucking years. That he acted like a Chiricahua in that he rebelled against authority. The same way respected Apache leader and warrior Geronimo rebelled against U.S. authority. Can't help but see a similarity here, mindset-wise, creatively, with this reference and that of Ariel and the Masada next episode. Recall, both groups were forced to fight for their survival against a more powerful enemy. And though they were eventually defeated, their stories have become symbols of resistance and courage. Interestingly, both last stands took place on mountains. For the Jews, it was a mountaintop fortress known as the Masada. Whereas for Geronimo and the Apaches, their final battle was fought in the Sierra Madre Mountains of Arizona. Personally, I just love the message. Refusal to surrender, even in the face of overwhelming odds. As a parent, I can't help but find myself preaching it, hoping it sticks in the future. After some prompting, Jackie gives his ruling. Restitution to Junior. The notion of a sit-down is so commonplace, assumed at this point. But what are the elements? What's the fucking playbook? My mind can't help but think there's some kind of an invitation. You know, like a parchment scroll wrapped and sealed with an affixed wax stamp with a coat of arms or family sigil pressed into it. And In Fair Verona written somewhere on it with a Shakespearean typeface. Today's version of that might look like an encrypted or ephemeral communication that disappears after a certain period of time. Tony's swift in his acquiescence, but Junior tastes blood and wants more. Wants Tony to put his thumb on Christopher and Filoni. And as we know, if Tony won't do something about it, he will. Next episode. Ultimatums or or else moments, after all, are so good at ratcheting up the conflict, the stakes. Junior's assertion is enough to annoy Tony to the point of revealing Jackie's illness, another neatly inserted little setup. Also says something about Tony's character, that he's not one to capitulate under pressure or anybody else's edicts, at least not until Melfi gives him some timely advice about the illusion of control. Perhaps more importantly, it suggests Jackie's days are numbered and that these two Sopranos are going to have to settle on who's going to run things going forward. Things that happen now are things we'll come back to later. Chekhov's guns, foreshadowing. When Tony plays off the notion of naming a successor, Junior falls in line too out of want of not showing his cards. But he wears his heart on his sleeve and we can see how badly he wants it. How infuriating it's been for him all these years. Suffering in silence. For years, I suffered in silence. Sylvia Plath over here. This idea of a guy who was stepped over and left behind is a great piece of clay to work from. So many angles, places to go, 
You've got the underdog, someone who's not expected to succeed or who's at a disadvantage, like Rocky Balboa. There's the forgotten man or invisible man, somebody society's passed over. The pursuit of happiness comes to mind. And the idea of a dark horse, the Jed Bartlett's of the world. When Tony believes it's all settled, he leaves. After hugging Junior, Junior sits back down and talks shit behind his back. The two-facedness, saying one thing to his face and another as soon as he leaves. His own blood relative. Fucking family, as he says in a later episode. Structurally, two-facedness is a great way to deploy dramatic irony, giving the audience information other characters don't have or know yet. And we're just gifted with an embarrassment of riches of that on this show. Couple stray observations. The Italian flag waving prominently next to the American flag, representative of a strong allied relationship that goes back to the 19th century, or when Moses wore short pants. And also, the reminder of the harsh, uncensored, gritty, morally complex world of the show. Livia's Ditsun line. Junior calling Livia's nurse a smoke. These things throughout the show that we can't say or do, we meaning those of us that abide by conventions and norms or perhaps more overtly, or just decent people, provide a kind of vicarious thrill element that pull us in even more. Shock factor or offensive factor notwithstanding. And there's also strangely a sort of catharsis that comes from moments like this on the show. The idea of experiencing extreme emotions vicariously through characters as a form of release or relief from our own regularness of life in a safe, unharmful way. Cue massive attack, safe from harm, right? Something my manager told me early on that stuck with me on my drafts was, be fearless in whatever you turn in. These sequences, as uncomfortable or cringe as they might be, are exactly that, fearless confident, and most importantly, true to swaths of contemporary society. And The Sopranos, as we know all too well, is unafraid to swim in the shark-infested waters of politics, race, class, gender, and sexuality. This show wrote the fucking book on how to approach those things. Tony crosses the street to say hello to Mikey, Junior's driver. New character, no fucks given, as usual. There is a handshake, though however insincere, perfunctory, or patronizing. And a great line. It's too bad they don't have a telethon for fuckface sightis, huh? They found a cure yet? Oh, come on, I'm just kidding you. Come on, you're a good sport, come on. All right. You all right? Yeah, I'm all right. You all right? You all right? You all right? Yeah. yeah, I'll see you later. Short scenes are great. Short scenes with great lines, even better. What's happening here is Mikey is trying to one-up Tony. But Tony's reminding him with relative ease that he gets the last word, especially from fourth-rate aide-de-camps, or in this case, Junior's Junior. Back at the coffee shop, Polly checks out the wares. The scene exists as a sort of check-in to let us know that progress has been made on the recovery of the teacher's car. Boring plot shit. But where it shines is in the character development. Polly can't get over the appropriation of his culture. So he answers back by appropriating one of their French presses. In regards to cultural appropriation, it's another fascinating canvas to explore because it's so charged, so vital. It touches on things like power dynamics, which we talked about last time. In this case, when a dominant culture borrows or takes 
from a minority one. Stereotyping. Decontextualization. Like putting a comic book character in a Scorsese film. And character exploitation, which is particularly rich in this show because these are a bunch of guys that make their way in the world by appropriating from a lot of places. They don't discriminate. From Hasidic-owned motels to Asian-run rub-and-tugs and everything in between. And with that visual of exploitative sex work, we're back at Livia's house. Carmela rolls up as Perry Lynn rolls out. Carmela asking what happened to having it be answered by a nonplussed Livia is a great cut. The construct is elegant. One person asks someone a question, a different person answers the question. There's an architecture to the writing that informs the editing. The scene shows us how easily she can undo what Tony does. Speaks directly to that power she has over him that Melfi talked about earlier. And her explanation that Perilyn's sensitivity was because of her race. She's a queen of unfounded generalizations. Not taking into account individual differences, nuance, and complexities. Most people of a certain age are, but few wear the crown as well as she does. Back at the sausage factory, we get a close-up of the Prozac prescription. Tony takes his dose in the privacy of his own bathroom while listening to a traffic report involving the Bergen Viaduct, that stretch of road that leads you to the Lincoln Tunnel. It's a fleeting thing, little scenes like this, but it's laying brick. Calm before the storm, moments like this connect us to character. It's almost like a pre-game huddle, Adonis Creed with Rocky right before the fight of his life. A commitment by the writer that, If you go on this journey with me, I'll pull back the curtain on a lot of things. Let you in. Expose the layers. Be it through backstory reveals, internal conflicts, or changing relationships. Here, there's even a dose of foreshadowing. The shortness of the scene is designed to make you think there has to be a reason for this. The mind naturally goes to that place where you know it's an advance hint of what's to come later. Will he or won't he go through the typical stages of prescription drug use? Will stable usage turn to misuse? Will misuse turn to dependence? Addiction. Discontinue the lithium. I already flushed it. Back over at Satrial's, we open on a shot of the menu. Those prices. What a time to be alive, right? The Satrial's by my house is a place called McCall's. Those guys are charging $14.99 a pound for spicy Italian sausage. $23.99 a pound for bone-in pork chops and $52.99 a pound for New York strip steaks. Grass-fed, though. All that, and they don't even have those desirable little bistro tables with the tablecloths. Tony lays into Chris and Brendan for not making adequate restitution. Christopher pushes back, always opposites. Guy's way too comfortable. Someone needs to slip him a copy of the 48 Laws of Power or something. Talks about the technique of positive mental visualization. That's using one's imagination to create a vivid picture of achieving their goals. You're supposed to see the achievement. What you're doing, what you're wearing, who's with you, how you're feeling. And supposedly, if you do that long enough with your eyes closed, and then open your eyes and return to the present, you're supposed to feel refreshed, motivated. Whatever happened there. And how that technique per Christopher means he should have been made yesterday, despite the books being closed. Brendan runs his mouth gets tossed out the door onto a counter of cuts of meat that some mook out front's going to end up paying top dollar for, none the wiser. But it's a nice little payoff for the visual we got of it all when they were headed into the back office. Tony takes all 15 on behalf of Junior, 
pocket some after telling Chris he'll talk Junior down. Shit rolls downhill, right? Now you get this. Davis Scatino doesn't pay you a fucking penny until I get mine first. Oh. Oh. That's the tax you get for raising your hands in my game. I get mine first, then you get yours. That's the way it's gonna be. Back out in the field, Polly and Pussy close in on the car thieves. Just another little check-in reminder about how all this work, this otherwise misallocation of resources, is in the service of A.J. Soprano's grades, born from an idea hatched in Carmela's head. The violence is made more dislodging by the brevity of the scene. It's as if the scene exists merely to show you how much these guys get what they want and leave the counterparty with little to no options other than compliance. The carjackers, Desi Arnaz and Lucy, as they became affectionately known, or perhaps not so affectionately, escort the guys to a body shop where the Saturn is. Predictably, because what would this scene be without a reversal, the car they need isn't there. Problems, problem solving, right? Pussy's had enough. Says these guys are going to boost a lookalike Saturn and everybody's going to call it a day. Even when they deliver vis-a-vis half measures, somebody's still got to pay full price. There's no such thing as partial refunds here. And this notion of solving a crime with more crime, resolving the fallout of a crime by perpetuating more crime, digging yourself deeper. Melfi quoting from Yates told us all about that in the Cold Cuts episode. The center cannot hold. Back at the sausage factory, the pool. Will there be ducks? The show's already managed to frame our expectations, our insights about the world we're in and what happens in it. Here, the establishing shot serves as a reminder, a callback to the pilot, and it's rewarded with a little payoff of Tony looking out for those same ducks. Meadow and Carmela are getting ready for a family dinner, Livia's en route with Carmela's parents. Regularness of life in full form. From forlorn to hopeful. Again, look for that in every scene, how characters start versus how they end. Tony expresses pride that his mother's able to drive people around. That is, when they're not predicting rain. This, of course, is a tacitly inserted setup to drive us literally into the next scene, whereby Livia drops off, then runs over her own friends. That visual of the friend coiling up on the windshield and then expanding and flailing onto the concrete. If she did that to a friend, just imagine what being married to her was like. Oh, poor you. This accident drives Tony right into his therapy session, breaking down the post-game stats for us, giving us the gravity of the situation suggesting that Livia was in fact undone by herself, that now she'll actually need proper supervision, that she can't worm out of or away from. Now Tony's got all the ammunition he needs, and that her being supervised is now essentially doctor's orders. Melfi vouches for Green Grove. It's a beautiful facility. It's more like a, a hotel at Cap Dantib. Yeah. But what's really happening here on an Earth's crust level is that it's the first of many times where shit will just take care of itself for Tony. The Richie problem. The Feech problem. Certain problems with New York. Guy's got an angel on his shoulder like Rocky, thanks to Mickey. See that? This is the favorite thing that I have on this Earth. And Rocky Marciano, give me that. You know what it was? It's cufflink. Huh? 
and now I'm giving it to you. And it, it's got to be like a, like an angel on your shoulder, see? And if you ever get hurt, and you feel that you're going down, this little angel is going to whisper in your ear. He's going to say, Get up, you son of a bitch! Because Mickey loves you. You was the angel, Mick. From inspired and inspiring to Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Chris and Brendan trying to get into a club with their girls. The visual of single ladies or giraffes, as they're referred to in script, getting priority over everyone else. If you liked it, then you should have put a ring on it. And then Martin Scorsese and the Kundun mention. Critically acclaimed, but a disappointment at the box office. There's only one, I believe, too. Six million against a $28 million budget. Later, we're inside the club, or up in the club, if that tracks your thing. No sign of Scorsese anywhere, though. Not even the pretend one. Brendan and Chris snort some drugs. Brendan tells Chris about another truckload, this time with Italian suits. Chris is in, even though it's Junior's turf, and he knows as much. Clearly revenge, if that's even the right word for the fact that he can't get made yet, and that Tony took the lion's share of his DVD haul. What this scene does nicely, though, is tie back in to the cold open. Stuff is changing. Payments are getting rerouted, or in many cases, not routed at all, on account that no one knows who to kick up to anymore. Which, more or less, is underling talk, but it perpetuates a self-fulfilling prophecy. Enough guys at this level start talking, there's dysentery in the ranks. It's not like I'm getting somewhere it's playing by the rules. From Adriana and Brendan's side piece, dancing, to Livia recovering on the couch while Tony has a spot of lunch. Contrast cut. Also, spot of lunch? Who am I, Hugh Grant now? Virginia Ham is referenced, and a Dwat set up for, well, a great exchange with Junior later in an exam room. Tony wants to talk about transitioning her to Green Grove. She wants to talk about anything other than that. Eating. Lamps. The real Ormolu. And quick aside on that, despite its relative toxicity in terms of mercury residue, it is in fact quite valuable, thanks to its use of high-carat gold. Tony mentions her jewelry, stuff that was boosted, suggested anyways, right out of a Cartier's. He says he doesn't want her stuff yet, only to hear that she already gave it away. That instant flip-flop from, I don't want it, we don't need it, to, you gave away all the good stuff? This is a tremendous scene because it goes layers deep. We get all Tony's emotions in one scene. The humor, the history, the hate, her threats. And kill me now. His threats. Then I will go to court and I will get a durable power of attorney over you and I will place you there. The greed, the guilt trip, the re-quoting and misquoting of Melfi. And there's a term for that phenomenon, parroting what your therapist says or something you read. It's called internalization. From the inability to make a decision to decision-making, Christopher opts to sit out of the Italian suit heist. You know, I'm going to drive off the beaten path for a second and just go capsule mode on heists and cinema in TV. Specifically, what a properly executed one looks like. And as we'll see, how Chase takes every element and turns it on its ear. The first thing every well-executed heist needs is a mastermind. These characters are typically wicked smart and experienced. They may even carry an enviable charisma. 
Here, what do we got? Brendan Filoni. Next up's the crew. You need specialists. Here, we got a guy who can't drive a Fisher Price and another guy who only knows how to hold guns sideways. Once your dream team's assembled, you need a plan, a detailed strategy that incorporates a mix of deception, stealth, and technical skill. Here, we got a bunch of guys laying flat in the middle of the road, in the middle of the day. Too desperate, too impulsive. Once the plan is ironclad, you need a target, usually a priceless artifact. Riches, the likes of which are worthy of the Count of Monte Cristo's journey. Or maybe it's extremely sensitive information. Here, we got off-the-rack suits from a target superiors told them was off-limits. Makes for intriguing story and fallout, but we know going in, there's no path forward where this plays out favorably. And finally, once you made your grab, next comes the getaway. Often high stakes, high adrenaline. Here, the guys don't know which way is left or right. And to make matters worse, there's the accidental discharge of a weapon, an innocent casualty, and the mastermind, in air quotes, doing the last thing you're supposed to do in that situation, panic. Now that whole aside was just to delve deeper into the command and control of the writing here, the systems and formulas that have been in place long before it existed but how it took those systems and formulas and made it into its own thing. How it subverted what a heist cannon should look like by deploying the most subtle, facile dark humor and reversing everything that's traditionally known about what we expect when we witness a heist. Now back over to Christopher. He came to his senses and is going to respect the food chain for now. So Filoni goes rogue. Why the change of heart? What happened? Why go to the brink, then walk it back? A man got to have a coat. There's that, but also we can see his gears turn a bit here. This Brendan guy is reckless. Could get him hurt, or worse, killed. He even says it. And if there's anybody that's going to kill Christopher, it's going to be himself. Definitely not some flavor of the month frenemy. What we're seeing is the first of many manifestations of loyalty. However begrudging they may be. However backbiting. And even more than loyalty, dependency. Tony can give him things, take him places. This other guy can't. Options, right? Mob deep? Ain't no such thing as halfway crooks? And here's a take. Only Christopher was in the room with Tony when he told him to stay away from Junior's turf. We have no knowledge that Christopher conveyed as much to Brendan. There's a possibility Christopher felt threatened by Brendan. I mean, both of these guys are comers. Maybe Christopher decided to give the guy enough rope to hang himself and in the process eliminate some potential competition or rivalry in the future. When you think about it, this has a bit of a feech feel to it. Better him than me. The writing is what allows for these interpretations to even exist, both what's on the page and what's omitted or unsaid. A particular set of skills Jesse Armstrong of Succession and his writing team have, perhaps better than any show since The Sopranos. It's that almost relentless interest in how human beings work, combined with singular comic dialogue that bounces like a ball in the hard court from vicious to vulgar to vibrant and visionary. And then finishes with some razzle-dazzle at the rim or a step back from 30 feet to make us all go Sinead O'Connor. Nothing compares. That funeral episode in succession is right up there with whitecaps in terms of moving the needle, marveling at performances one after the other, 
and being unforgettable. RIP to anybody else trying to grab an Emmy this year. Back in the field, Green Grove. See what I did there? Olivia moves in. The conveyance of inevitability in a script. That is the sound of inevitability. The staring contest between her and the intake administrator, Mrs. DiCaprio, who's way older than 26, by the way. For whatever it's worth, what'd she do that Giselle, Barr, Blake, Nina, or Camila couldn't? Junior calls while Tony fills out Livia's paperwork. That's twice now. This guy calling at specific places other than Tony's house. How resourceful is Mikey, huh? Keeping tabs like a file folder. This in an episode that in part has to do with people not being able to properly use the telephone. Georgie, Livia. It's a concept that transfers across eras and generations. Humanity creating technology and then always playing catch up with it. As a storytelling device, it always works. There's always somebody behind the curve. There's always someone we know who does the exact same thing. There's also those of us who say it'll never happen to us until it does. Like Billy Joel instructively sings, and so it goes. Livia's non-response throughout, just that resting expression, that's the writing knowing it doesn't need to do much because it's got her and all the subtext that comes with it. Her silence and body language always communicating volumes. It's simply what makes her so realistic. All these characters. The immediate notion her silence conjures up is, what is she going to do to Tony? How is she going to get him back for this? But that same silence all at once also communicates wisdom, introspection, secrecy, senility, or even social discomfort. There may be a past or hidden secret, something she's thinking about, remembering, that will come back in the form of a payoff later. She could even go Anton Chigurh at any moment. We simply don't know. And that's what's so magical about it. I put a spell on you. Cause you're mine. Back at the house, Tony and Carmela prep lunch together, commiserate over Livia. Christopher calls. It's urgent, so outside line. Per usual, a moment of peace and ease interrupted by another shoe falling. Again, no setup. Just showing you how these guys do business. Love this on levels so deep, I can't possibly explain. Or maybe I did over 180 fucking podcast episodes. I don't know. Just the details and the confidence of it all. Tony goes to see the fallout from the Italian suit heist gone wrong. The contraband is being held at Barone Sanitation, a good place for trash and a stash. T says they got to give it all back after he, Polly, and Sill take a few for their own, of course. Just the irony of taking your end out of someone else's restitution. I got some bad news today. Won't say what, because who'd give a fuck? But I bring it up because this moment here with the suit fills me with the same sense of irony. Shortly after I received the news, the guy who gave it to me via a go-between, no less, posted a picture of himself teeing off on a fairway. I had to summon my inner Svetlana. People are people. Sill bookends his Godfather impersonation, a simple, effective tie-back to the cold open. Finally, a swift third act. Mr. Miller gets his car back, Emphasis on the word his. He gets 
a car back is more accurate. Tony drops by his parents' abandoned house. The awkwardness, especially for any of us who've done something like that. The sadness, the guilt, the way we express those things in private moments when no one else is around. The memories. He had some there, right? The use of score, a rarity for the show. Though, perhaps if Nicholas Bertel was around back then, it'd be a different story, different show. But you see the experimentation, especially early in the journey. The could there be a score? Should there be a score? Or maybe somebody lost a fucking bet. Who knows? And, of course, the anxiety attack, which lands us right back in Melfi's office. His sadness turns to anger. Her qualifying her sympathies with a but sets him off. She, in turn, implores him to own the anger instead of displacing it, or even redefining it, hiding behind the word sad instead of what it is that's really going on. Otherwise, it defines your life, she says. Otherwise, it defines your life. To break the defense mechanism cycle of displacement starts with acknowledging it. Short of that, it can lead you to things like chronic anger, interpersonal problems, unresolved issues, self-esteem. Classic Tony, true to character, he acknowledges his anger pretty effectively, I'd say, by storming out. The notion that he hates his mother is too much for him to hear, especially from another person, a person with an advantage, but mostly because he knows it's true. And who likes being called out for something that's true? Displacement, in this context, definitionally, is redirecting anger towards a less threatening target rather than confronting the source of the anger directly. Unfortunately, that anger Melfi spoke about, well, it gets displaced on Georgie here. There couldn't be a more perfect, less threatening target than that. Of course, punctuated by the fact that he shares the same inability as Livia to adapt to technology. The episode fades out to perfection. No sophomore slump. Just a continuation and a progression of things to come. From the girls at the Bing, just watching Georgie get pulverized, to slowly grooving back into their routine. Undulating, I believe, is the word Chase used in the script. Collecting those essential tips. The regularness of life powers on, and so do we. Next time, it's denial, anger, and acceptance, but not before a thank you. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Check it out now.